Dr. Fold. Hello there. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me all right? Absolutely. Good. Okay. Well, um, so my name is Mika. I'm the CEO of a company um, called Xtures. And thank you so much for coming on Target Cancer. Uh, this podcast is about how health technology uh, is helping cancer patients. And I really appreciate your time um, to come and speak with us today. Um, maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about you. I'll, I'll do the same, give you kind of the little background, and then let's talk a, just a little bit about what's going on in the world of oncology and cancer, um, and particularly as it relates to technology. Absolutely. Thank you, Mika. Is it Mika or Mika? Mika. Mika. Great to meet you. Wonderful name. So I'm Dr. Hardeep Full. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist. Uh, I work at Palmer Health Cancer Institute, and we're building a phenomenal program. Um, I've always been interested in cancer ever since uh, growing up in high school. My mother was an oncology nurse. I would go around with her uh, on patients and volunteer at the hospital. I always had a passion for patients with cancer. I always just had a heart for it. Um, and that was over 20 or 30 years ago when we didn't have that much in cancer except for our regular cytotoxic chemotherapies and so forth. Maybe there was a few dozen things you had to know in the field. And it's just so exciting how far it, we've burgeoned from then to have immunotherapies, targeted therapies, and genomics to guide us now to help individualize and personalize treatment so that it's tolerable and more effective. So I'm just really happy and excited to be in this wonderful era of medicine, of digital medicine, as well as genomic medicine to really practice on the cutting edge. Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about Palomar Health Institute? Can you tell me about the institution, kind of um, what your guys' philosophy is and the types of patients that you, you generally treat and see? Absolutely. Well, we're a brand new institution, actually. We're in northern San Diego. Um, we're just opening our doors, actually, this month. Um, we've always had cancer care in our region, but it's been somewhat fragmented. And our goal is to integrate it once again, to provide patients a one-stop experience, everything under one roof, and, and really coordinate care from the time of diagnosis, you know, from the time of whether it's a radi radiology image or a pathology report, all the way to meeting our many specialists, from surgeons to oncologists like me, uh, radiation doctors, and other specialists, I, I think, our goal, like any institution's goal, is to make it a team multidisciplinary experience. I'd be lying to you if I said I could take care of it all or if I know everything. You really rely on a team of experts who work well together and make the patient's care better that way. Um, and that's what we're all about. We're all about growing uh, in a place, especially in the region where we are, where the cancer care is somewhat fragmented, like I said. So. We're very excited, and I think uh, we have all the tools that we need, uh, along with specialists, but also access to those personalized technologies and, and genomic medicine and so forth to really help our patients. Well, congratulations. I know it takes a lot of work to bring an institution like that together. Um, very exciting time. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the technology which you're going to be uh, delivering and using to help deliver care to, to patients. You talked a lot about what's changed over the last 20 or 30 years. As patients are out there, um, and I, I run across this all the time, you know, most of us don't spend um, 
uh, or most people don't spend their time learning about cancer until they have to, right? It's not a topic, right, that you, you want to keep top of mind. And so um, for, I think for a lot of patients coming in, they might know maybe or have heard from people who understood cancer or what they've heard or read about. It might be out of date, so 10, 15 years old. Um, can you talk a little bit about the what you think are the most exciting technologies, both in terms of kind of medicines, but also diagnostics and kind of the biological parts you were talking about, genomics and sequencing. So there's therapies, there's diagnostics, and then also information, right, and technology related to actually organizing and coordinating care. Can you um, share with us about that? Certainly. You know, the idea of genomic and personalized medicine has been along, around for a long time. And I was lucky to have training at the Cleveland Clinic for when I was in medical school. We were already thinking about that back then. And my training has always been as a physician investigator to do both, to do science and to do clinical medicine. And what we, we always use this term, bring the bench to the bedside, meaning you bring the laboratory bench findings to the bed, to the patient. And classically, you know, a couple of decades ago or even longer, we've had information in test tubes and petri dishes and animal models, but there's always been a uh, sort of a hurdle in what we call translation, translating the awesome discoveries we have to the bedside, to the patients. Uh, and that comes through many mediums, the most common being a clinical trial. You test out a hypothesis, make sure that the drug that worked uh, in your laboratory or in a, uh, a, a small study actually translates to the entire population. But I think what's been a hurdle in this whole field is the ability to do it more uh, conveniently for patients and to tailor it for patients, such that each, each patient becomes their own, uh, I hate to use the word experiment, but they become their own internal standard control. They become the driver based on their unique profile, their uh, all of their characteristics. And we can do that now with very inexpensive whole genomic sequencing, something even 10 years ago, which would have cost thousands of dollars, now costs hundreds of dollars and even less. And there's so many companies now available to do it for patients such that there's grants and foundational funds to do it for free for patients who can't afford it. So being cutting edge is one thing, but being able to apply cutting edge to the entire population economically is the other. And we're finally, I feel, at, at that stage. And that's what's the most exciting to me. We can always, you know, read academic papers or publish things saying this works and this person and, and then look at this new pathway. But if we can't deliver targeted therapies economically or provide that technology to everyone, you know, it, and also globally, not just in the United States, that is a big win. And I feel we're in that, that era. Yeah, Dr. Fole, you're, you're talking about some subjects that are just very near and dear to, to, to me. Uh, number one is patient centricity. And, um, you know, our company, X-Cures, um, we put that kind of front and center. Um, I know in the delivery of care, it's often really, really important. But patients really are the ones who are in the, they have the most to win and to lose from the entire experience here of going through care. And I find patient centricity um, and really being true to that to be incredibly uh, important. So it's wonderful to hear um, your approach of trying to put together the integrated system where everything's in one place because, um, boy, is it hard to figure out what to do um, uh, in the first place. The other thing that you talked about is this idea of translational medicine, right, and really being able to bring um, 
the latest learnings, whether it be coming out of clinical trials or frankly, what I heard you describing, I always think of like the N of one, the one person experiment, right? And trying to put all that knowledge and data um, together. So as, as you think about delivering kind of cutting edge care and delivering it economically, how, how do you, how do you keep track of all the new stuff that's going on? Right? Because I get, you know, I get the journal articles sent to me. I'm not an oncologist. So I try to read them. I'm sure you, you, you interpret them in a very different way than I do, but just it's such an enormous amount of information. So how does that get synthesized and processed? You bring up a great point. There's so much knowledge out there. There's so many publications, so much data. And we call that nowadays, we call that big data. That's what it's called. How do you sift through that? And we have many algorithms and things like this to help tear down data. You know, in, in, a, in a clinical trial fashion, the best way to do that is a cross-sectional kind of retrospective review of multiple studies all at once. Um, but to keep track, you know, you, you have to pick and choose, you know, what your top, let's say, high-end publications are. You know, the big players in the field like New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet or JAMA Oncology or the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO. They make JACO, the General Clinical Oncology. I think the only way to keep track is to at least pick and choose the most high, high end, high yield. And also, I think, um, I'll, I'll be honest, I, you learn from patients and you learn from each other. You learn from other people's experience. One of the best things I've had the privilege of doing is uh, being in a, a system where I've worked with different people over time in different, in different institutions and kept those uh, alliances alive such that you can phone a friend or, or you can join these social media networks full of other doctors who kind of try to tackle these uh, uh, medical problems head on and offer their opinion in a very intelligent and kind of standardized way. Uh, one such resource is called the MedNet. It's actually a website online that I think was created only a couple of years ago by people with this ha having the same exact problem. How do you synthesize all this data? How do you get doctors together on a virtual community to discuss such data? And how do you get experts together? So it's kind of like a virtual tumor board in a way. Mm -hmm. And of course we have our internal tumor boards, but that could be regionally biased and, and in other ways have some bias. But um, one thing we're doing at our institution at Palomar Health is we also have a, a Mayo Clinic Care Network Alliance. So every patient we have can get an automatic second opinion or I can run the, the case by a Mayo Clinic physician specialized in that subtype of cancer, not just that field, but the actual subtype. Mm -hmm. That's an outstanding resource to have. And I think a lot of institutions I find are starting to form alliances like that with big cancer centers that provide that data. And in doing so, what you, what you can do is provide clinical trials for patients, as well as integrated knowledge and the ability to, to kind of think together and, and give people more of a second, third opinion sometimes. And, and that's, that can be a good thing, I think. And it is a good thing. So um, this is, again, one of those topics where I, I feel like if we could figure out how to share all of this knowledge, and in particular, the rationales for treatment. So not only what was the test, right, or what was the biological um, component or even the clinical component, but what did a, an expert physician like you think was the right thing to do and why, like the why or the knowledge behind that. Um, and so we've been working on this type of technology at x -Cures, and I know others as well of actually understanding rationales. Um, 
as you think about an individual patient coming to Palomar uh, Health, as they come in, what sort of preparation, you know, someone's coming to your institution, how do you envision preparing for these encounters? And, and kind of, there are two things. How does, how do you and your team prepare for the patient? And then what is it that patients should be thinking about in order to get the most out of their experience? Because it's a partnership really, as I think about um, uh, the, the way translational medicine and, and care are delivered. I think it's always important to understand the patient's story and also to understand the, the oncological history, where they have been. A lot of the time I see patients at, at diagnosis and, and the bare minimum, you need pathology. You need a good pathology department. You need an accurate diagnosis. You also need radiology. You need to know how to stage the person and, and a CT scan or PET scan helps to do that, of course. Um, beyond that though, uh, getting the clinical knowledge is one thing and that's how I prepare is knowing what kind of cancer are we dealing with, what subtype, what stage. Um, you look at the patient's characteristics, but nothing tells you more than meeting someone face-to-face. -face. You understand their worries, their fears, their hopes, their optimism. Uh, if you ask me why I do what I do, it's not just the science. It's meeting people, sometimes at the most vulnerable point at their lives, and, and, and forming this connection that's so powerful. Um, th that's where I learned the most. My treatment in many ways, I can make a treatment decision based on paper and, and pathology and reports, but my real decision comes after meeting someone and realizing what their abilities are or what their disabilities or some of their unique characteristics could be that could steer me towards something else. So what patients should know about this process is just that, that it's a process. Um, gone are the days where you look up in a textbook and say, Page 26, there's the answer. That's what we do. I think every time I see a textbook printed and I buy it, I already think it's about a year out of date. I know it is from the time it went through publication. Data is coming out so fast that you can't possibly go on Google or read a book. So I tell patients, research your cancer, learn a little bit, learn the basic lingo about cancer therapies. And as hard as it is, be patient with the process. You will meet our entire team. We will discuss you and walk you through it. And we will have empathy for you and, and get you through. Um, I, I think it's hard to expect for every person. And so, you know, a lot of it's just getting people in quicker and making sure we coordinate their care. It all, it all comes back to coordination. So they don't feel frustrated, like they're a lost number. Like, where when am I seeing this person? When's that? A, lo a lot of ways that cancer care has been improved is actually not the technology, but it's by the people. And one of you know one of the best concepts I've seen in cancer care is the idea of patient navigation or patient navigators, which are usually nurses hired for each type of cancer. They can be case managers, they can be nurses, and they kind of help walk patients through from diagnosis, through specialty visits, and throughout their treatments to help figure out what their needs are. And so when I talked about it's a team concept, I really mean that. It really doesn't even start with the medical doctor. It starts with a good coordinator to help patients through and help them cope, help them understand the process. So one of the things that I often see, right, is patients who are newly diagnosed, right, and I hear these stories from the patients and the doctors, is they go and they they go on do Dr. Google to call it uh, some, and what it is. And frankly, I do the same thing, right? The first thing, I, if I don't know something about anything, 
takes me all of about like half a second to grab my phone and start Googling something and looking it up. Um, not to pick on one company, there are others out there. It just happens to be the one I think most of us know. So when patients come to you with information, right, or they're looking at information, do you have any advice on kind of how to be discerning? Because um, even having worked in the field for some time now, and I, I'm not an oncologist, being around the oncology field, if I try and understand what I find when I go online, it's really hard. Like mm -hmm. it is a lot of information, but some of it feels very valuable. Um, and so what is it that's worth paying attention to and what's not? And, and how, how do you kind of broach that subject with your, your physician? First of all, I encourage patients to look up information. I don't want them to feel like they're in the dark and the knowledge only flows one way. And what I say is the only and right way. The other great thing, especially as we have Google, you know, Dr. Google, as you said, I've found more and more these days, the top search results tend to be sources such as cancer.org, that's the American Cancer Society. Uh, I tend to see Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic at, top of, at the top of the list. I tend to see Johns Hopkins. These are great resources and their websites from top hospitals in the country providing information. I honestly believe in that. I do feel patients should read those sorts of resources. The problem is patients don't understand the, the, the nuances of exactly what subtype of cancer they are and what, what that implies for therapy what their stage is, and what the process is. And I think as much as we like digital technology to tell us what's out there and summarize a topic, you know, I alluded to the fact that textbook medicine, reading up a textbook is only, will only take you so far. And that's even in the hands of a good experienced seasoned physician. So I tell patients to go and read an overview of their cancer at reliable resources like those, but to wait for us to help Simplify that data and give it context. If you don't have context, you know, a, a early stage breast cancer and a metastatic breast cancer, for example, are very, very different. Um, so I, th I think that's, that's part of it is yes, have a open information stream, but understand the limitations of that and have your physician kind of qualify that data and, and give you some insight and context. I mean, w w when I think about this, I think about a conversation that's been going on for a long time, I think, around shared decision making. So how do you have the right information at the right time? Because I think timing is also really important in terms of when, and to your point, even you were talking about staging in different stages of cancer, there's different information that's appropriate at different times. So putting those components together um, and then really having a team come together. Um, it really resonated with me what you said about having the coordination um, and, and navigation components um, uh, put together. As you've been building out this, this hospital, right, and kind of building it from the ground up, um, are there particular elements in the technology or the information technology or let's say the tools that you wanted to have at the disposal that really stood out where you thought, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, you were bringing up like 10 years ago, I would have thought was, mm, I don't know if we need this or not, but now this is, this is really the future. Like these are the things that are going to really um, uh, move the needle. Certainly. There's two parts of that question. So I'm going to give you two answers. First of all, I loved what you said, shared decision-making. 
when I was in medical school, I was part of the American Medical Association or AMA. And I was the president of the student chapter at our medical school. And I wrote an article back then about decision-making and shared decision-making. And back then the US health system was taking kind of a toll. It was being compared to others, being called error prone, being called uh, inefficient and costly. It is all of those things, by the way. And there are multiple areas of improvement and we can even learn from our neighboring countries all around the world who do fantastic jobs in various sectors. But one thing, one statistic that always caught me um, was how the United States health system is very good at that, that concept, the shared decision-making, the involvement of the patient. Um, that's something that's unique. And, it, and it, in many ways, it's cultural. Some patients like to go to a doctor and have this paternalistic relationship where the information comes down from the doctor and the patient listens and you know the meek patient who listens to the genius doctor. That's kind of becoming an archaic sort of uh, concept. We want patients and their experiences to be shared with us. We want to make decisions together. The best outcomes happen after you make a decision together. Now I can provide insights, I can give options and expertise, but in the end of the day, it's the patient who makes the decision and it's, it's, it's this shared, shared uh, knowledge pool. I think that empowers people and it gives them dignity to understand that their opinion matters, um, that it's not wrong, that their fears and everything they, every thought they have about cancer uh, is real and should be discussed. So that, that's my first part of, of what you said. I love that idea, shared decision-making. That's something that's not technology-based. It's actually in many ways cultural, and it's actually something that you have to do actively. Uh, you have to think about it. Um, and, and I absolutely welcome that. Now, the second part of your question was, what are these tools uh, that excite me the most in, in this era of medicine? I think I've alluded to it this entire, um, on this entire podcast. It's, it's genomic medicine. It's the ability to sequence the whole genome of an individual and identify uh, alterations in different genes that have implications in therapy. Um, these are including known genes, things that we know cause disease, but it also means exploratory uh, findings that could help lead future research and help us uh, under and learn from every patient. Uh, that's the other thing I'd like to say is I'm learning every day and it's not just from these journals, but I'm learning from patients. These tools, these genomic studies, these N of one studies help us as physicians learn and, and use that for future decision making. It's really just a wonderful concept. So uh, precision medicine, which is kind of, I think, the catchphrase we always have uh, been using around how, how did genomics. Um, when is that what does a patient have to do to to make that part of their care is is there something they need to think about or they need to make sure they're doing so that they can be to do the shared decision making right you, you kind of need to be a partner in this process and then in order to do um things like sequencing there's timing and whether it's a blood test or a biopsy there's certain things that need to happen what should patients be asking about this um and you know not everybody I, I, frankly, from the patients who, for instance, our company works with or some of our nonprofit partners work with, we're often surprised at how, how few of them have actually gone through the sequencing process as much as, as you'd explained. How should patients think about that? What, 
and basically advocate for themselves. Absolutely. I, I'm always a believer of patient advocacy. I believe patients should tell us their concerns. And, and most patients, when they see me the first time, ask about these things. It's amazing how much insight patients have. And even if the topic they bring up may not be relevant to their case per se. For example, I don't necessarily order full genomic sequencing on day one on every patient. It actually may not be indicated. It could even cause more harm than good if you get information that's not relevant or pertinent to that case. But in this day and age, it is so common, I feel, to do genomic sequencing in this precision medicine and oncology. We do it from um, and, and any number of different ways, including disease monitoring after treatment to monitor for early relapse. That's with circulating tumor DNA, all the way up to trying to find targets for therapy, usually in the later lines of care, usually second or third line, but even in first line to help determine, for example, uh, whether an immunotherapy could be a good candidate instead of conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy. I think for patients, they should always advocate for themselves, always bring up these ideas that they have heard, the lingo, the precision medicine. And like I said, it's a shared decision-making um, uh, process. When it's appropriate, I absolutely advocate for patients to get it done. And what's great about this era in medicine is that insurance companies and the data, which is what insurance companies follow, <laughs> the data shows that there's clear benefit in using these technologies. And as you use it more and more, it's supply and demand. The cost is coming down and down. And it's Way never down. been, I've never had an issue where I couldn't get uh, an uninsured patient even coverage to, to get uh, um, sophisticated, let's say, genomic sequencing done. Because yeah, at the no, end it's... of the day, it does save costs and it also saves lives. And I think people are recognizing that. So um, just for our, our audience here, you talked about a, a basically a, a pretty new technique of circulating tumor DNA. Could you uh, explain uh, circulating tumor, CT DNA testing, and kind of what, when is it, what is it used for? What is its value? Um, and, and when is it appropriate or not? So at this time, it's mostly has value in the setting of monitoring after, let's say, someone gets chemotherapy typically for colon cancers, different GI cancers, breast cancers. It's being developed for many different types of cancers, and it's very sensitive. You can find early circulating tumor DNA being a, a, uh, a marker of early recurrence before conventional lab studies, including, let's say, the complete blood count or uh, tumor markers like CEA. It can be a more sensitive way of detecting early relapse as compared to blood tests, even before patients develop symptoms. That's very exciting and, and it's validated. So why not catch it early instead of waiting for your CT scan to show a large lump of cells, you know, probably millions of cells. Why wait for that phase? Why not get it when it's hundreds of cells? That so makes a lot of sense. Improved. And by circulating, it's actually in your blood or where, where is the circulating? Right. Tumors shed their DNA in the blood and we can detect it in the blood. And that's how we're using it at this time. The future of this technology is, of course, massive. And people are already talking about, can we use it as a screening tool widespread in the population for people who don't have cancer or, at, or are at risk of cancer? That'll be a discussion that may take years or a decade or more, but it's on the horizon. <laughs> Could we replace conventional imaging one day with something like a sensitive tumor DNA marker. 
But I will give you a caveat of some of this technology. Just because we can detect tumor DNA, does that mean a person will will form a cancer related to that? That's a question that's still up in the air. We don't know with our healthy immune systems and, and so forth, how much tumor DNA could be, let's say, normal that's on the process of being destroyed versus how much is clearly abnormal and when it'll d develop disease, as well as what's the time frame, what, what the detection limit is. But it's exciting. That is, I think, where the field will move. And the key will be the same thing we've been discussing about when the data meets that demand and when the economics also meet that, when mm -hmm. it's actually cheaper to do genomic circulating tumor DNA as compared to, let's say, colonoscopy or a mammogram. And when the two get compared and, and are basically as accurate as each other or, or more accurate, let's say, without causing further, let's say, false positives. Now, false positives are a problem. If you detect, let's say, tumor DNA at a, you know, a few copies of tumor DNA circulating around and it causes anxiety and worry in our patients, leads to unnecessary scans, unnecessary procedures and biopsies, which may never have been needed. That's what we always have to struggle with. We want to be sensitive and cutting edge, but we also don't want to expose people to unnecessary uh, um, procedures and so forth. And, and that's going to be explored, I know, over the next decade. And these are the topics that will definitely come up. And it's balancing that benefit versus, let's say, the risk. The risk in this setting being a false positive. Right. Yeah, I often think of this almost as the utility, um, having spent some time in, in just kind of the data and the data science world of like, when when is it worth doing something, right? And And you brought up some really interesting concepts there, both of how well does technology really work? And we need to understand its its sensitivity, specificity, these statistical measures of whether it works. And then what is it uh, what does it cost? So how much and costs have a uh, you know, it could be financial costs, but there are emotional costs actually and and real human costs involved um, in all of this and kind of putting all of that in the balance um, for us. I agree with you. This is going to be a very exciting time. Um, you talked about uh, uh, the immune system. And um, I, I know uh, that immuno-oncology and these drugs that work with our immune system have really been a kind of a game changer um, over the past few years. Um, so have targeted therapies, which are targeted based on the type of genomic profiling that we were talking about. Can you uh, just give me your perspective on these kind of IO therapies versus targeted therapies? Do they get done together? Or should they be standalone? Kind of where where what's the thinking right now around these kind of these are the big advances, right, in, in the past decade. When immunotherapy came out, I mean, it's been studied for decades, even in the 1990s. Um, but really, when it came out more in the uh, early 2010s, let's say, in melanoma, and then later, really a burgeoning of it in 2015 and onward, it was thought to be something that could be used for relapsed or refractory cancers. It's amazing how the field has shifted, where now frontline treatment for multiple types of cancers involve immunotherapy either alone or in combination with cytotoxic chemotherapy or in combination with oral targeted drugs, like you're saying. Um, and we found that these beat the conventional comparator and they're better. Um, so for example, in lung cancer, it's often the paradigm now to do immunotherapy with chemotherapy. And then to use immunotherapy as a maintenance arm. You know, normally where patients would have had some sort of chemo 
and stopped it because they couldn't tolerate anymore or it wasn't working. We now have sort of a maintenance drug that we can give for a year, sometimes longer, uh, to prevent recurrence or to basically treat the cancer even when it's not detectable. And it's this whole thing of harnessing the immune system, which is already working in all of our bodies to detect all of these second by second uh, changes that are happening in all of our cells on a cellular level. You know, cells have a way of giving a signal for apoptosis. And then the immune system is what's involved in, in getting rid of those defective cells. So when, when these cells escape that general mechanism, that's when cancer is basically formed. And then it forms ways to evade the uh, immune system with these checkpoints and that there's a biology behind this. And so the checkpoint inhibitors, which are the immunotherapies we talk about, uh, these are basically releasing uh, the brakes that are put on the immune system. It's giving a go light instead of a stop light, uh, a green light for the immune system to do what it does normally. It's what it was evolved to do is to prevent infections and prevent cancers and aberrant cells from taking over our bodies by simply activating it. Uh, it. It's been a thought for many decades. Why not use the immune system that way? But now when we're using it in combination or even alone, we're seeing amazing responses, often even complete responses in what was previously thought to be, let's say, a metastatic cancer that was incurable. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole new age uh, of medicine where we're using them in frontline. And the harder part now is getting to know what do we do when immunotherapies fail? Do we go back to the conventional chemos? And that's where the precision medicine comes in. It's trying to always, at each line of therapy, being ahead of the curve, detecting what the cancer is doing on a molecular level and seeing how it's adapting. You know, there could be new mutations that evolve over treatment simply because we put a selection pressure on different forms of cancer cells. You know, we used to think of it as a homogenous process. Every cancer cell is the same. I think we're finding that there's multiple pathways. And if you start treating one with one certain drug, well, you're maybe promoting another or you're allowing a selection pressure on another to develop. And then you treat that one. And in the same time, you're constantly monitoring to see if the cancer, let's say, is evolving and yet another third mechanism of resistance. And so it's really exciting to use technology in that way to make an intelligent decision choice rather than just throwing the next brand of chemotherapy on patients like we used right. to. You know, you're, you're describing a concept that um, we've talked about on, on our team a lot, which is kind of how do you play chess, uh, to use an analogy with cancer, which is for every move, if you think of uh, the masters of chess, whether they be computers or people, they're thinking 5, 10, 20 moves ahead, right, of maybe more. I, I just can't think that far ahead uh, myself. But this idea of trying to use the data and really planning not only for treatment, but for maintenance and then what to do in the future and kind of thinking, thinking through that to me feels like a, a really important set of concepts. Um, as we've discussed that idea, right, of like what is the plan, not just the plan for this decision, but a bunch of different decisions. One of the things we thought about was, well, that actually becomes a very complex kind of decision-making process. And if it's individualized, so we go back to the precision medicine idea, that means that every single one of these plans is also kind of individualized. And I think one of the very important things you said is that you have to see the person, right? And the, their kind of desires and their clinical features and combine all of that together. 
how are we going to share this knowledge, right? This is kind of the question um, for me. And I think it's an opportunity for all of us to talk about like, how do we share what happens? And then how do we take this type of information and share it kind of aggregating N of one, right? Or looking at all these individual experiences and how do we contrast them or incorporate them with what we're learning through formal clinical trials, right? Which are their own kind of mechanism. Um, and it sounds like you, you've got an affiliation with the Mayo Clinic you, you, at um, the Palomar, and you guys are going to be working with them on some clinical trials and other parts. How do you think of the role, sorry, I'm getting to the, the of clinical trial research versus kind of precision medicine research, right? Which are kind of two, mm-hmm. two different intellectual problems in my mind. Right. Well, first of all, to clarify on the Mayo Clinic connection, uh, we're part of their uh, clinical care network. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not technically the Mayo Clinic and we can't do clinical trials. But the best thing about that uh, alliance and affiliation is that we can send patients for opinions. And these are clinical opinions. Okay. Having an expert in the field, let's say, who, who has published renowned you know, international papers and knows, knows that level of detail, the next level, the cutting edge, to get a second opinion. But to answer your other question, uh, how do we integrate ends of ones and make them into translational research? How do we make them apply to a larger population? I think you combine ends of ones and you see what worked in a given scenario and then you use probably some form of machine learning and artificial intelligence to combine this. It comes back down to big data. And I know these genomic companies are doing that on their end. They're trying to compile based on certain predictive factors from certain genetic mutations, many of these uh, genomic companies actually are intelligent enough to provide a possible clinical trial for a patient. So they will provide, let's say, a report in which you have the actual genetic markers and the mutations, but then there's an implications page. It'll say, this pathway is involved in this. Consider this drug. They actually have intelligent algorithms based on clinical trials and prior patient data. So we're always accumulating this data, and it's it's building a larger and larger pool. I think the future will be some sort of machine learning. I think it'll be aggregating all of our data and trying to understand it on a big population level and understand it globally, understand it based on ethnicity uh, and so forth, uh, based on age, based on sex, demographics. That's, I think, the next level is it shouldn't be a one fits all or, you know, whatever one uh, set of data showed, but whatever, whatever a conglomerate of data for multiple different institutions and, and countries. That's what a clinical trial does. If you look at a really well-designed phase three randomized clinical trial, the patients are blinded to the therapy. There's a good control arm. You have a hypothesis and you study such a hypothesis with multiple institutions and countries involved. And then you look at the demographics over those and try to understand how different subgroups uh, interact with each other, how how different people uh, may uh, um Benefit, how there may be a risk to certain populations or certain markers that may um, modulate the response. So to answer your question in a complicated way, I think we, we already are combining these therapies and these N of 1 studies into bigger ones. And I think clinical trials can, use, I think that can create hypothesis generation for mm-hmm. which future clinical trials can then be conducted to say, hey, there was an interesting signal in these few patients or this group. Let's investigate that in a larger, more uh, methodical approach, like a randomized trial. Uh, And then one day, like I said, 
have machine learning or artificial intelligence also try to conglomerate that data in an intelligent way. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Full. One of the things um, my team and I have been working on is we have this idea, we think of it as like air traffic control. So if you think of a really complicated system, um, and I was just on a on a on uh, another panel uh, discussing this, um, we were talking about kind of what is a complicated thing that's used machine learning and artificial intelligence to really solve it. And we've actually had one of these for a long time in airplanes. It's called, uh, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Fahad, who was, who was with me, actually made this point. So we've had autopilots in airplanes, right? Where the pilot is there and providing supervision, but for some portion of the journey, right, the autopilot knows what to do. This is the right place. And, and that enables the pilot to do more and fly a very complicated piece of uh, equipment and information. And so it's almost like an augmented um, interaction. So you can think of some of the medical and data systems that we have as actually augmenting what doctors are trying to do is just organize the information. You mentioned some great sources of information for patients and also for physicians, right? How do you bring all that data together? There's, if I may interject, this please. is a, this is a passion of mine. I'm actually a private pilot and I've flown airplanes since right before medical school. Hmm. And it's interesting. I didn't do it to make myself necessarily more clinically apt. But there's so many things in the cockpit I learned that apply directly to medicine. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite prolific authors is Atul Gawande, who mm -hmm. you know has published outstanding uh, editorials and books, and has done interviews and 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 lectures uh, discussing this idea of a checklist. Now he's a surgeon by training, so he talks about the operating room checklist and how you can be fancy and have the next uh, the best cutting edge technology in the OR, but if you don't have a checklist and know, you know, kind of the approach and the process so to avoid medical error, you can still have the autopilot, let's say, uh, go wrong if you don't program it correctly, or if you don't take the steps leading up to that point. Because as you know, an airplane doesn't take off on autopilot, it gets put on autopilot as right. those essential steps. And the preparation time in uh, starting an airplane's engines and, and all the avionics and all of the checklists to make sure Everything is in order before you even get on the tarmac, before you even get on the runway is outstanding. And you need air traffic control despite all of that. You know, you need someone globally watching all over all of these. So if you make analogies to cancer care, you could say, well, we have a lot of information that we can then plug into autopilot. But what are those parameters? If you tell your autopilot the wrong information, mm -hmm. it could crash the plane. You have to know what data it's feeding you and also what things you have to adjust based on based on what it's uh, uh, doing on your in your airplane, let's say. And so, again, that's a really big passion of mine, trying to link aviation and medicine in some some way. Some way. A lot of analogies there. And I, and I think it's always, uh, always exciting. Yeah, let me. Um, I, I'm just going to riff off this because I, I love this topic, too. I'm, I'm not a pilot, by the way. I, I took one, actually three lessons. And then something happened on the third one uh, where the engine made a weird noise and the, the, the um, instructor landed. And I thought, you know what? Not for me. So I, I, that was just my own personal choice. I don't even know what um, would happen uh, there. But I spent a lot of time on airplanes um, throughout my career. So I really appreciate what they do. So um, the air traffic control component becomes really interesting to me. So we have this idea of setting parameters and autopilot and augmenting. And I think a lot of people have worried about artificial intelligence in healthcare. And, um, and there's this 
I guess it's almost a, I don't want to say misconception, a conception that's out there that technology is trying to replace physician or human decision-making. And I keep trying to say that it's actually, it's not, it's really a way to take um, our experts and to extend their reach and to extend our ability. And I think about how important that is. I mean, in the United States, we have 1.8 million cancer patients. There's only 13,000 trained oncologists like yourself out there. So this is a mismatch in the number of patients. And I, I, you know how busy oncologists are from how busy you are and the time that goes into it. And so um, making the most out of this time and out of the resources that we have is something we have to do. There, there's really no alternative because um, it takes a long time and a lot of effort to become an oncologist. And we're not going to solve that problem with the demography that we have in the aging population in this, in this time frame that we have. So part of it is the technology to help us make individual decisions and then to make sure that the process is going. And you talked about the coordination across a care team, I think also very important. On a level above that is the controller systems and co- collaboration. And I, I've been fascinated and now we've been working on this idea of being able to aggregate not only data and the big data that you talk about, which I think is really exciting because in there are all these little nuances of signals and information and different approaches that may or may not be right that then warrant further discussion, but actually the capturing the thinking, right? If you think about the the real essence of decision-making, it's about the way that we as human beings bring together a large set of complex data, which includes, you know, things like we talked about patient preference, right? clinical features, things that may or may not be in the data, might be something that happened years ago, unrelated, right, to the actual disease itself, the genomics, the new technology, and all the rest, and put it all together. And in those decisions, right, and being able to share the rationales of those. And so um, that's something that we're we're working on. And um, I'd love to collaborate further with you on that, because I think the air traffic control is how we've often thought of it, not in the sense of trying to... um, control things or decide everything, right? Because really at the end of the day, the pilots are still flying the airplanes, right? But it's giving them the information that they need and coordinating. So, you know, if there's really bad turbulence ahead or there's a horrible weather pattern, you want to tell the pilots and actually make some suggestions for them that, hey, maybe you want to change your heading here or change your altitude and this type of thing. And so I think there's just an enormous um, opportunity there. Um, Let me tell you a quick analogy once again. Again, (laughs) I love this analogy. But air traffic control, you could think of as automated. You could think, why couldn't that be replaced by, let's say, an automated system, uh, both for oncology or for, let's say, actual airplanes. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a pickle, let's say, flying uh, an airplane at night with uh, any number of things that can happen. And you look down at the, the, let's say, the ground below and you say, my goodness, I'm so glad there's someone at the other end of this radio who mm-hmm. can guide me down if something were to go wrong. I've been in a situation a few times, actually, where I was flying over mountains. I either lost uh, radio contact or it was intermittent. Um, uh, not quite engine failure, thank goodness, knock on wood. But in, in a situation like that where you have to communicate and knowing on the other end there is a human there, it provides so much comfort. So as much as we love technology and we like to say, okay, let's automate this, let's make this easy, let's not have uh, people at the checkout counters, let's do our own grocery checkouts, you know, with automated checkouts, for example, in that analogy, (laughs) it's the people that drive the process. It's why we pick a certain brand. It's why we uh, feel comfortable flying. We know that someone has our back. 
If you apply that to cancer care, it's critical that we never let technology exceed our humanity. Mm-hmm. Behind every patient and behind every story is that shared decision-making. There's that story. It, there's a person. Uh, and, and when I think of people's lives, I don't think about statistics. I think of this is what they did with their lives, and this is this is how they beat cancer. Or in some cases, this is how they maybe died of cancer, but beat it with dignity on their terms. And I never let someone who has cancer feel like they were a failure. You know, in this country, we treat death a lot like it's a loss. And in many ways, my cancer patients have taught me the most about death and dying. And again, this is not every cancer patient who dies of cancer. But I've learned more about life and hope and dignity from the humanity of of patients than by technology or by interesting journal findings or conferences or all the data we're discussing. To me, the most exciting part of going to work is talking to people and being inspired by them. And I'm in such a lucky and privileged profession to be able to do that day in and day out, to get to meet people in their most vulnerable point of their lives and have them share such intimate moments uh, with me. And, And that gets to the next topic you talked about, the shortage, not just in oncology, but in every profession virtually in in medicine. And we need to excite the next era of physicians. You know, we need to excite the next uh, um, a group who's in college or high school to want to be a physician. And it starts with medical education early. It starts with making education not a long and arduous process, maybe streamlining it, maybe uh, revising the college and student loan process so it doesn't become this big um, opportunity cost. It becomes something possibly streamlined and, and easier to accomplish. This includes increasing the number of medical schools and increasing the number of training spots in residencies. Mm-hmm. Right now, even if we wanted to increase the number of doctors, I don't think there would be enough medical schools to train them all. And so we need to get beyond this uh, old school fashion of having only so, so many spots and having certain um, uh, arbitrary criteria to allow doctors to come in. We need to open that up to let people who have a real passion do mm-hmm. what they want to do. Otherwise, I feel like in this country, we're going to have a huge shortage, like you said, to deal with the aging population. And then quality will come into play. And then all this other stuff becomes a replacement for people because you don't have enough staff. You have to extend them. And that mm-hmm. includes excellent you know, uh, uh, physician extenders, including nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants. But at some point, it could be where it becomes somewhat algorithmic and Though that may be good in some ways, I worry that if we lose the humanity, lose the ability to touch our patients, you know, to to physically examine them, have that therapeutic relationship, I feel we're going further and further away from what we went into medicine for and for what patients see a doctor for, you know, the, the reassurance and the, the people connection. So going back to air traffic control, I think patients want to hear their air traffic controller calling them, giving them guidance and saying, Hey, we have an airport ready for you to land. The lights are bright and the conditions are good. Come on, Come in. on in. You know. Well, I love that you mentioned nurses as well as doctors. My wife's a nurse, and I was gonna—I was already trying to think about it. Better get that in, otherwise, I'm gonna have a hard time when I get home. Um, so, um, it's, I think it's across the system, you know. And I, I really—I feel you really kind of synthesized this 
this thing very clearly. The technology has to help the people. We, we, we are about medicine is about the human interaction and about the care, right, which we're delivering, which is more than a blood test. It's more than a DNA marker, right? It's more than some novel therapeutic. It's actually a, 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 an experience that people go through in order to address some issue that they have that's a health concerted issue. And that's actually about the people who are involved in that. And so as much as air traffic control is technology, it's also a way to augment those people. It's the technology that helps facilitate putting those pieces together um, overall. So um, uh, again, I, I know some patients are going to join us here on the uh, podcast shortly, uh, Hardeep, and I, I love to um, hear about their experiences and we'll just talk with them a little bit. But separately from that, um, I'd like to connect with you also around X-Cures and what we're doing. We can do that in, a, in a, another offline um, session. Um, we we're trying to put together this traffic control system. We're trying to provide some autopilot tools to help patients uh, and doctors. Um, we're pretty early in that process in the sense that um, there's a lot to learn, um, but we've had some initial successes. So I'm going to reach out to you um, offline as well uh, and discuss that. So um, yeah, so thank you so much, by the way. I really appreciate you coming on this Target Cancer podcast. The dialogue is fascinating. I'm really excited. Can you tell me a little bit about Palomar Health uh, and what's the kind of area you're going to serve? Uh, you know, I lived in Carlsbad. I mean, as soon as you said Palomar, I thought the airport where I had that experience was the Palomar Airport. Palomar uh, airport yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, what, what's the kind of community that you're going to serve um, uh, in the San Diego area? Well, if you know the San Diego region, uh, Palomar Health, uh, the district for this, this, this area is massive. It's actually the largest one in California or one of the largest. I think it goes as far high as Temecula and a little bit north, including Marietta, as far east as places like Ramona and Julian, which are mm -hmm. considered rural areas, as far west as about Oceanside, and as south to about Scripps uh, Ranch and Poway. Pretty large uh, network of patients. But we're, we serve San Diego just because those are our district <laughs> geographic guidelines. And I may be off slightly on those. We serve San Diego. Our, our, our goal, our vision is to attract patients anywhere and to help them with their journey. Um, and that includes being in the geography where people are, but also that includes being a place where people want to come to because they get outstanding care. Okay. I love the idea of, of integrated care. I think it's very difficult for patients and I'm just working with patients who've had data, you know, they've seen lots of different providers and been in different systems, sometimes not intentionally. I don't think the patients even realize they've gone from one system um, to another and trying to help them manage their information and knowledge, right? And just putting it together and getting to one place can be very difficult. So I, I love that um, uh, approach. So um, I think we're probably a few minutes out. I need to get a, a glass of water here. Um, so... And then yeah, um, I will as well. Yeah, <laughs> our patients are joining uh, shortly. Um, any particular uh, uh, specialty that you had in terms of your um, your own care? Any particular cancer type organ that you focused on? I've had a lot of interest over the years, and it's evolved. And one of my major issues with, uh, let's say, staying in academics was you had to become so sub specialized. Mm -hmm. To the point that you only took care of one kind of cancer. In training, I always enjoyed doing everything. I enjoyed being a general oncologist. The problem with being a general oncologist in this day and age is the sheer amount of volume of data. So you have to sort of rely on your subspecialists and have really close relationships mm -hmm. with experts that you trust and know, and also have a wide net to learn as much as you can about everything. 
But if you were to ask me what I absolutely love, I would say I love um, uh, genitory, genital urinary. So this includes prostate, mm -hmm. uh, bladder cancer, uh, renal cancer, lung cancer, absolutely a, a passion of mine. And in many ways, we're when we talk about these N of one studies and precision medicine, in many ways, we remove the diagnosis. We don't treat people as you have this cancer, therefore here's the algorithm, we're doing this. You start saying, this, this is your mutational profile. Here's the genetics. Here's what's uh, uh, aberrant in your body. And here we're going to treat it this way. You know, in many institutions, there's what we call the molecular tumor board. Mm -hmm. And they treat patients based on genomic alterations, not necessarily what kind of cancer they have. It's a whole different way to classify cancer. Though we still like to classify it as a certain subtype. But the idea is you don't treat based on an algorithm because it's only that subtype. You can treat, let's say, colon cancer with breast cancer drugs or breast cancer with other mm -hmm. drugs and different that we classically used in other diseases based on genetic mutations. Um, so it's a whole different way of thinking. And I think I like to think of myself more in that global picture, more as someone who uses precision medicine. But if you were to ask me and push me down to what I love taking care of and what's common, I would say a lot of thoracic oncology, GU mm -hmm. oncology. Yeah. But, but I like it all. If you were to say, well, does that mean you don't like breast cancer? No, I absolutely love taking care of breast cancer patients and many other cancers. Uh, I think the challenge will be in the future is not just getting enough oncologists. We talked about the shortage, but getting enough subspecialists, right? How do you get someone to go into one specific oncology field while mm -hmm. serving the needs of the broad population? Better community. Enough generalists. And so it'll be a challenge and we, it might be a paradigm shift. You know, it might be a, such a setting where you have general oncologists, but then you have, let's say, a couple of subspecialists or a half dozen subspecialists in a given region who provide some expertise and, and even referral care for some of those patients well, you, beyond the standard therapy. You brought up uh, molecular tumor boards, which is fascinating. So we've been studying molecular tumor boards and the rationales that different tumor boards have, especially when you get into, and we started in brain cancers and then pancreatic cancer has been kind of the area we've done the most amount of work in that, and particularly looking at those molecular tumor boards. And then the recommendations between the different oncologists. So how do you capture um, why someone feels that something is more important than another? And the reason that we got so fascinated with this is, um, uh, just going back to the, the math here, is this kind of cursive dimensionality that happens when you get more information. So more information is not always helpful, right? It actually makes the decision harder at some point in time. And so if you have multiple mutations, multiple drugs you could pick, multiple things could be delivered, the timing sequence, this whole planning process, right? What do you prioritize, right? And, and that question actually doesn't lend itself to traditional, um, you know, RCTs or controlled trials because there's more questions to be asked about every question there and there are people to actually try and test it. There's not enough kind of subjects in, in, in the true sense uh, to understand that. And even if there was the uh, sequencing, so, you know, pick five things, what order would you put them in, right? And then if you only had to pick a subset of two of those five things and then pick what order they were in and you didn't, they were all weighted equally, you actually have this massive experiment just like explodes on you um, right away. And so we're spending a lot of time down in those rationales and trying to understand what it is, again, that an expert like yourself um, um, would, would think to do um, because it's probably the most directed way 
to um, extract that information and then trying to share that information with the patients uh, and other physicians. Um, because, uh, and, and I like your, your point here about the subspecialty, right, is get an, ex an opinion from a subspecialist, then share it with another one and see whether they agree or disagree, right? And then most importantly, actually try it, right? We need to collaborate and then look empirically now at this evidence afterwards and say, there were two differences of opinion. They could only be opinions because the data would not, we don't have the data, we wanna have it one day. But now that we do, can we learn from that experience? And so this type of uh, continuous learning, and I believe it's gonna happen in community settings, by the way, that's where I actually think 80 plus percent of this type of work is really going to happen um, compared to the leading academic centers um, because they, again, have very special and they're doing incredible work, right, uh, around new science and new technology and developing new therapeutics and that sort of stuff. But putting it into practice and actually making this work efficiently is going to be um, a, a real, a really interesting, uh, I think, era that we come into. Um, and and uh, to, to make a point, I mean, you, you mentioned molecular tumor board. You didn't mm -hmm. say molecular tumor, uh, you know, NF1, right? Right. So though we do NF1 studies, you could have an N of 20 specialists in a room together in a tumor board to make a complicated decision based on experience, based on uh, the data. Uh, that The key is integration amongst specialists and working together. It's mm -hmm. never a, I know everything. In fact, if anyone ever says that, that tells you they're automatically wrong. No, right. We're humbled every day by what we don't know or what we could have gotten wrong, actually, in the past that we revamped maybe a decade later. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's seen all the time where a study proves that, oh, my gosh, what were we doing back then? That was wrong. Um, it takes a group of humble, dedicated people who trust each other and who understand that, that it's, it's about insight sometimes. sometimes mm -hmm. It is data, but it's insight and it's understanding it's a collaborative group process. Uh, no man is an island and cancer definitely cannot be an island. That's funny. We always think of clinical, I always think of clinical trials as islands. They answered the questions that were on that island, right? Uh, and then there's another island that's another trial. And the problem is there's a whole bunch of water in between the islands. And I want to be able well, to- Well, at least the, be, the best we can do from scientific you know, data and process now is to do multiple randomized institutional studies, but among multiple countries and institutions, mm -hmm. That's how we try to, let's say, um, take out the bias there. But but you're right. Um, a clinical trial with a thousand people in it, or even two thousand people in it, which would be a massive trial, by the way, massive, yeah. would be not encompassing this seven billion people on our planet. But it is the best way we can do it at this time. And I'm sure with artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, that's how you get it on the population level eventually. I feel. Yeah, and I think we're going to need ways to translate this. So, um, you know, another part that I've been um, uh, really looking at is is data and data privacy, right? Which is really important. And of course, under HIPAA um, and our healthcare uh, data privacy laws here, you know, the relationship between patients and physicians and even in institutions actually limits the transfer of knowledge. And I want to be clear: I'm not saying that as a negative thing. It's a very good thing from a privacy perspective, and we need to have it in place. But there has to also be mechanisms for knowledge sharing, right, and deep knowledge sharing. And I think that that as as we've looked at it anyway, the most interesting thing is the the person or the entity that can unlock data more than anyone else is the patient. So I, as a patient, own my data. 
right? Your patients own their own information and choosing to participate and share in the shared decision-making process, right? And trying to build those connections, I think offers us enormous opportunity. Um, and we see that now. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that have happened recently from a legal perspective around things like patient right of access to data, right? And other components that um, I think we all struggled with a little bit over time, but I think are probably going to end up being very, very beneficial um, to us all in terms of being able to share knowledge. And they're gonna open up new avenues for research and, and, um, and collaboration. So I, I think I'm all about open um, access. And, and I think it's called open notes in California. You know, yep. the idea that patients own their records and should be able to read uh, uh, our impressions and what we wrote uh, and, and have access. And I, and I completely agree with that. The problem in the past was we relied on, you know, faxes and, and ways to print out medical records. Now with patient portals and the ability to mm -hmm. patients just log in and read their note and, and, and message their physicians. It does help increase the access. The, the key is making sure again that you modulate that information for them. There, you know, physicians we sometimes speak at different levels and are thinking different things, uh, and and there may be things in our notes that aren't necessarily completely pertinent to the patient or that we may have missed. And I think patients need to understand that that there this is still a medical document and it's written a certain way. That's right. At the same time, we don't want it to be you know like. A, legal disclosure for your credit card statement, where it's such small print, you don't understand what's going on. No, it has to be usable. Yeah. Uh, so I always write, try to write in my notes something a little bit personal to the patient. You know, at the end of the plan, I, I may say, great to see you today. Uh, good luck with, um, I know, your upcoming uh, uh, anniversary or your upcoming trip. I'm really excited for you. Yeah. And our patients always like that. They always smile next time they see me. They I say, love you, that. Are you allowed to write that? And I said, yeah, it's yours. Why am I not allowed to write it? That's right. That's right. No, I, I love that, Dr. Full. So I think we have a, a patient who's joining us. Uh, let me see if I can get my uh, technical folks here uh, to help out. Hey, Frank. Frank. Oop. Sorry, don't mean to yell in your ear. It's microphone. Yep. So I think uh, one of our patients uh, is joining us. Okay. Hi, Monique. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, my name is Bika. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called Xcure. So thank you for joining us on our podcast here, Target Cancer, which is about how the health technology is kind of revolutionizing or changing the world for cancer patients um, and their doctors. I'm joined by Dr. Full. Maybe Dr. Full, you could introduce yourself and give a little bit of background. And then Monique, after Dr. Full, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little yeah. bit about your experience. Yeah, of course. Monique, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Dr. Hardeep Full. I'm an oncologist and hematologist in uh, the West Coast. Um, one of my specialties is trying to understand how to unlock cancer and genetic mutations and using precision medicine and personalized care to help target treatments that help our patients, not just in terms of effectiveness, but reduce toxicity and, and make people feel better as they're yeah. going through their cancer journey. I'd love to hear your journey. Tell, tell, tell us more about yourself. It's actually my husband's journey. My husband has aphasia, so he can't speak. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So he was diagnosed with uh, stage three anaplastic oleodendroglioma 10 years ago. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's been quite the journey. The first seven years were great. We didn't really have much. It was just scans every six months to nine months here and there. 
No, January of 2019, the tumor started to grow. We ended up um, having a, um, where they went in and they cut some of the tumor out and they got as much as they can, got about 80 to 85%. He did well up until November, 2020 of last year. He ended up having a major brain bleed. He had a five centimeter hematoma on the top of his brain and on the bottom of his brain. Um, plus he had tumors kind of all over. So they went in, did emergency surgery and get that out. He's doing great now. He just can't speak. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of oh, been our okay. biggest journey right now with all of that stuff. So Monique, um, how did going back now is 10 years is a, a yeah. long time. Can you just describe the, the experience in the beginning? Like what happened? Like, how did you become aware that there was an issue you and your husband and then kind of what happened and, and what we're really interested in, I think is the experience, like what happened, like what worked well, what didn't work, what, what was important to you? Um, how did you get information? Yeah. So in the beginning, um, we thought he was just having what the doctor said was an anxiety attacks. Like that's what we thought. We went to the ER because one day, sorry, let me close this door. One day he was uh, driving home from work and he started, he see, he mentioned it like the room and the, everything was going in and out, in and out, which ended up being what we found out later on was a seizure. Ended up going to the ER. They said, no, it's just a really bad panic attack. Here's some Xanax. It'll be fine. We finally pushed and pushed and pushed his doctor to give us an MRI um, and his doctor's like, I don't know why I'm doing it. He's too young for anything to be wrong, but I'll do it for you anyways. Well, come to find out two days later, we get an emergency call <laughs> that you need to come in. Um, and they found a three by four centimeter um, tumor in his brain. And they, the doctor said, oh, I don't know what to do for you. Here's your file. You need to find an oncologist. So I think that's hard having your your physician that you've known for so many years, not kind of guide you in the direction. We didn't know where to go or what to do. I literally spent all night Googling and trying to figure out the best like brain cancer surgeons in California, where we can go. We contacted Dr. Black at Cedar sinai We contacted so many different doctors all over to figure out what to do. We ended up going to Loma Linda through the ER, kind of like the back way because he was having seizures back to back every hour. Um, and once we were in there, they ended up doing, they couldn't do surgery because they thought of where the tumor was located. They couldn't get to it. So they just did a biopsy at that time. So at that time we did that, um, it was Easter day, actually <laughs> 2011. And it's just, was a lot of emotions, a lot of craziness. We didn't know how to go through this process. We ended up starting at Loma Linda, but once I found out we needed a neuro-oncologist, we ended up moving to City of Hope because there was really no neuro-oncologist at Loma Linda at that time. So I think that was the biggest, the hardest thing was doing that and trying to find doctors that actually understand your case because his type of brain cancer isn't very isn't like glioblastoma where so many people know about it there's so many different treatments for it it's very different it's very rare 
So I think that was the hardest part for all of us is just trying to get that guidance to figure out where we're supposed to go next and what are we supposed to do and finding the best treatments. Um, but once we did find the best treatments, like right now we are actually at St. Jude with uh, Dr. Creo and Dr. Casey. I think he's one of your ex-cure doctors doing immunotherapy there. Um, and it's been great. I have to say St. Jude has been amazing in Fullerton and guiding us through this entire process. We literally have a nurse that I can text message her any time of the day and she'll get back to me. I think that's been the biggest thing is having a great care team to help you because you don't know, like, why does he have this or what's wrong with this or he's not talking or something like that. So I think that's the hardest part. Yeah, Monique, uh, Dr. Full and I were talking about how it's a team approach. Dr. Full, could you uh, just explain maybe for some of the listeners and audience here, maybe some of the different types of brain cancer and maybe these early symptoms, just like things people might look out for. Um, just listening to Monique's story, it struck me that there were some things going on that maybe they should be aware of, but just maybe a little bit about the different types of brain cancer. Certainly. I mean, I think Monique brought up the, the fact that it's so hard to tell what's going on when you're diagnosed with cancer and also before cancer. You know, not every headache or, or problem that we have in our lives is cancer related. But of course, sometimes, you know, when patients get a headache and you think that, you think what's the worst that could happen? I've been a patient before where I had terrible headaches and I was having symptoms and I finally just needed to go to the emergency room and get a CT scan of my head. I can completely relate to your process, Monique, and yours is frustrating, especially, you know, you described a, a time where you didn't know what was going on, the doctors you had didn't quite understand what was happening. And then when you had that diagnosis, it was a very rare one. It's actually yeah. something that if you ask me, have I seen a case like that? I've probably seen one in my career. And so, you know, me and Mika were talking earlier about patient experience and how do patients get information in a field that's devoid of it, often for these rare diseases. And you end up Googling and you end up looking for information. So. And it's frustrating. And then you go from institution to institution, hoping someone has an answer. Yeah. Um, and that's a big passion of mine is you, you absolutely nailed it on the mark. In the end, what you told me was it wasn't the technology or the website. It was a navigator. It was a nurse, I believe. A nurse. Who yeah. coordinated your care and described everything that was going on and was there for you. Yes. You know, we talk about teamwork and group works. We, we talk about it so often. It's it, 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 yes, we need technology. We need to understand rare tumors. We need to do the latest and greatest, but we need to put humanity in the equation. Yeah. And I've met some wonderful nurses. We call them navigators, actually, nurse yeah. navigators. They're like angels in disguise. They're the ones that patients uh, love the most. I mean, of course, our physicians, we, we give oh, advice yeah. and we provide the academic piece, but uh, um, it's, it's, very, really encouraging for me to hear that from you, that it was a, a nurse, someone yeah. who was just uh, uh, medically trained, but at your level and willing to help and guide you through. Yeah. And that's something we, we lack sometimes in, in medicine, for sure. Um, as far as the types of brain tumors, I think uh, I think you've seen it, Monique. You probably know just as much as I do, <laughs> knowing what's out there. I mean, there's all types of benign tumors, including meningiomas and things like that, all the way to the most advanced, uh, most common called glioblastoma, which you also talked about, GBM. Uh, and there's various treatments for them. And you mentioned immunotherapy being a something you've tried at St. Jude. That's something we didn't have a decade ago when your yeah. husband was first diagnosed. 
And it's amazing to me to think that, that 10 years later, he's alive and he's getting the latest and greatest. And, and the, what's so late and great about it is that in many ways, he's not getting, let's say, a, a chemo drug that's just harming all of the cells of his body. We're just harnessing what the immune system already does. And we're just kind of blocking the cancer cell from blocking the immune system. Exactly. And we were, me and Mika were talking about that, how, how simply elegant that solution is. And, uh, and I hope certainly that your husband's benefiting from it so far. Yeah, what, so what's, far. what's been your experience uh, using immunotherapy? And is there any targeted drugs he's getting with it? Yeah, he's actually um, doing Keytruda's, his immunotherapy, and then he's doing an IDH1 inhibitor because uh -huh. the genetics from his tumor have the IDH1 in it. So he's doing Tipsovo on top of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he's doing those in combination. And his last two scans have been great. They have shown wow. actually a decrease in the tumor, which is good. Um, but so far, the immunotherapy has been way better than the chemo because he did... Um, the chemo pill beforehand and he was just so sick he ended up having to have four blood transfusions and all of that stuff just because they lowered his blood count but this one he has like right now he just got um immunotherapy on thursday and he's just feeling a little crummy right now but usually by day four he's back to normal again he's doing better and he can go about about on with his life so that's been the biggest thing but having this new treatment has been a game changer for us. And That's this is so a, encouraging to hear. This is not my understanding, uh, Dr. Fole, this is not a standard treatment, right? This is not a standard of care type approach. This is a pretty novel approach. Am I right in understanding that? In some ways it is, but in let's say GBM, a common brain cancer that Monique talked about, we do use immunotherapy. There are IDH mutations and there are trials testing IDH inhibitors. I'm guessing that your husband, Monique, is on a uh, clinical trial with these companies. Yes. And, that, that's, and that's the right thing to do. You know, me and Mika were talking earlier. What do you do when something is so rare that we don't have enough data or, you know, a common cancer, but in which you fail the conventional treatment? What do you go to? And the answer is you find you try to find new targets, new stuff using genomics, which is something that we didn't have before. Oh, we had, but it just wasn't available on a consumer level as widely. Now we do it for every patient. So if your husband was my patient, that's exactly what I would have done, even without having expertise, let's say in his specific tumor type. And we have what we call molecular tumor boards now, something yeah. that wouldn't have existed a decade ago. No. We, we don't say, okay, breast tumor board, brain tumor board, lung tumor board. We have those still, but we'd look at patients' cases entirely different. We say, Let's look at what the pathways are, what the genetics are. Let's treat that intelligently. And it seems to be working in your husband's case, and it tends to work because we're thinking of cancer outside the, let's say, the naming conventions or where it is in the body. You know, geography may be, for all we know, completely irrelevant at times. What's more important is what's going on on the cellular level, what's going on in those brain cells that we can target. And, and lo and behold, when you target what's going on, you have less side effects and better effectiveness. I mean, that's a win-win. Oh, definitely. So Monique, one, one kind of last question here, and we really appreciate you coming on, on this podcast uh, for Target Cancer, keeping up with the technology, right? And, and going from the very first point where you know you were told this is rare and we don't know what to do today, what have been the big resources for you? Like what, 
what sorts of places it was your doctors was it certain places on the internet what how have you kept this is this is complicated stuff it is complicated stuff i think now there's so much more resources out there um virtual trials is a huge one for brain cancers that's out there that you can search you can kind of look at the genetics of a tumor and see what different types of clinical trials are out there which has been a great help for me there's also Facebook groups, just talking to people that have that same type of cancer or genetic mutations that you may have and just seeing what they're doing or what their doctors are doing has been just so great for us. There's a big group on Facebook. It's called like, we are the wise of GBM. Even though my husband doesn't have GBM, just getting their knowledge and what they've gone through and, and listening to their stories has helped us so, so much or helped help me so, so much because as a caregiver going through this it's 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 totally different than as a patient going through this as well so i think facebook groups these different websites you know what i mean just talking to your nurses and seeing nurses are a great advocate for you too and they help you along the way so so much my husband also has like palliative care at home so he kind of gets IV hydration and his nurse here that comes to the house has been amazing too so I think if you just have a great team in your corner, it's a it's a huge plus for everybody. Well, thank you, Monique. Uh, that's been a huge topic for us already yeah. on the show. The team is wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on Target uh, Cancer. You. Really appreciate it. And the best to you and, and your husband. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing you your story, Monique. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that's an outstanding example right there, see? It is. Yeah, and this is what exactly I'm what about. we were talking about. This, you, you, you meet people where they are in the journey. See, she told her story, what she's going through, what her what her frustrations were, and they're the frustrations of every cancer patient. It's the mm -hmm. lack of knowledge, the one directional knowledge, the coordination of care, and, and, and you know you, you have these these discussions, and you you see how inspiring people are and how they, how they deal with these things. Hi, Christy. How are you? Hi, good. Hi. Christy. My name is Mika. I'm the CEO of a company called Excures. Um, so thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's called uh, Target Cancer, how the health tech uh, revolution is helping cancer patients. But um, I'm finding it's actually a talk, a discussion about patients and doctors and cancer and how we're all going through this journey together and figuring out and understanding our treatment options. Um, so I'm going to let uh, Dr. Full introduce himself uh, real quick, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit about you and just your experience uh, so far. Sure. So Christy, I'm uh, Dr. Hardeep Full. I'm a hematologist and oncologist. I practice in San Diego at Palomar Health. And my areas of interest are, well, multiple areas of cancer, but also understanding the patient's cancer journey, understanding how we can use precision medicine and clinical trials and help patients get knowledge, help them empower them, give them dignity, and help choose a treatment that matches them on a personalized level. So I would really love to hear your story, or if you have a relative who you're talking about, we'd love to talk about this and, and understand what you, you know what you went through and, and what feedback you have. Yeah, um, so I am a stage four cancer patient. Um, I was diagnosed in June, 2018. Um, I have rectal cancer that initially spread to my brain, and um, now it's uh, in uh, my lung. Um, so I've been on in and out of chemo um, since basically I had, you know, I had a craniotomy and then um, I had our gamma knife radio surgery, started chemo and I've been in and out of chemo um, basically ever since. So, yeah. Was, 
Was there early on something that made you realize that something was going on that was kind of an early signal, sign or symptom that really kind of got? No, I didn't have really any symptom. In hindsight, I had symptoms that I kind of attributed to like menstrual cramps, things like that, most mm -hmm. likely. Um, my dad had colon cancer and he died from it like 20 years ago. So there is a family history there. Um, but I had, a, I was actually um, abroad in Ireland and had a seizure. And oh, um, yeah, I went to the hospital. I've never had a seizure before. So I was like, okay, this is new. <laughs> um, so I uh, went to the hospital there and I was in there for, and the hospitalized for a week while they were in test on me. And then um, I mentioned my, you know, family history and the doctors decided to go do a colonoscopy and, you know, they found a tumor there. And this was in Ireland when you were diagnosed, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, not not the cultural experience I was expecting. <laughs> say the least. Yeah. So going through this, and and uh, I'm assuming that before you, you found this out, you, you didn't spend a lot of time researching cancer or treatment options or really understanding much about it. How, uh, what was important to you kind of in the process and kind of learning about what to do and what your approach would be like? What What are the things that really made a difference for you? Um, I think just having, well, first off, I, I pretty quickly found the um, Colorectal Cancer Alliance. Um, and they have a Facebook group called Blue Hope Nation that was like instrumental in, you know, just figuring out like what they're in the next steps. Um, and then, you know, we had been through this with my dad, but, you know, a lot of the drugs are like, there's so many different options now. Um, so I, I didn't really think about it too much, honestly. I was just like, I just have to get through this, you know, and that's been kind of like my, um, my mantra ever since. Well, it's wonderful to hear. I, I love your attitude. You, you know, you're living through this experience. Um, in, in terms of those information sources coming together, any advice you'd have for other patients kind of find themselves where they did? Is there something that, that you think just everybody should just have and realize and it's kind of your learning from this yeah i think like self-advocacy is like probably one of the most important things you can do as a patient um just like finding out like resources whether that's like you know looking for them on your own or using your social worker in your hospital um that was like yeah that that's really instrumental um also um you know, just like talking, finding other patients to talk to and figuring out like, you know, who's, you know, um, gonna be able to like, kind of like give you their, um, you know, talk about their journey and what they've gone through. And it, it really, it really helps having like other, like finding other patients that mm -hmm. um, are going through something similar as you. Yeah, we really heard a lot of this, you know, social support being so important, not just among the care team, and not just with the doctors, also the navigators and nurses, everyone you meet along the way. Have you used, you may have said this earlier, have you used social media at all? Have you used other ways to find uh, a common ground with other uh, people? Who have yeah, that? I'm actually really active on social media. Um, and I, for whatever reason, on Instagram, I found like a, tons of um, patients just by looking at like colorectal hashtags or whatever. Um, so I found like, yeah, actually I, I did some traveling this summer and um actually was it was pretty cool i was able to meet one of the people that i've been interacting with on social media in dallas where she lives i'm i live in new orleans but i spent some time in arizona this summer um so yeah i think it's crucial because like you know your family 
they can definitely support you and family and friends, but like, unless you have somebody that knows exactly what you're going through, um, it, it's just, yeah, it's just not the same. I've had some patients tell me wonderful stories and ideas they had from their uh, friends on social media. One of the coolest I saw was uh, a, a group that would make t-shirts for each other. And they basically had like all these uh, signs on the t-shirt, almost like, you know, like pow and kabam and, it basically like a healing t-shirt that you wear during chemo and it's killing the cancer inside. I just found that so inspirational and creative and that a group like that was doing that and, and, and doing it for each other, almost like a mentoring program. Like I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to get you a t-shirt and we're going to share this together. Um, it's really inspiring um, how much social media has changed things. Yeah, I think interconnectedness and sharing of information is, is uh, again, a topic we've been talking about in this whole podcast is just absolutely crucial. Well, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, being part of Target Cancer means a lot to us, and um, I wish you really well. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're the best. Thank you, Christy. Okay, bye. Bye. Hi, Paula. Can you hear us? Here you can. Oops. Oh, there we go. I think it's coming in. Yes. There we go. Hi, Paula. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I can. So, hi. My name is Mika hi. Newton. I'm the CEO of a company called um, Exures. Um, and thank you for coming on our podcast. It's called uh, Target Cancer. We're really talking about you know patients, patient experience, how technology in particular is changing the world uh, around cancer. Um, and I'm joined by Dr. Full. Maybe Dr. Full, you can introduce yourself, and then Paula, after he does, tell us a little bit about you and, and your experience. Hi, Paula. So again, I said I'm Dr. Hardeep Full. I'm a hematologist oncologist in uh, San Diego. Uh, we're having this podcast to talk to patients about their experience, hear about things that they've learned along the journey, insights, and also talk about anything they've done that maybe uh, you know something inspiring or or some sort of a journey with precision medicine you know, how, how you may have tried new therapies and how you've kind of navigated this difficult journey and getting information and how you got the information and digested it and who helped you. So welcome to the podcast. We'd love to hear your story and your journey. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me. Um, oh, gosh, I've been through cancer three times uh, with colon cancer um, each time. And I mean, it really took a while to figure out what I actually had. Um, as I was so young, it turned out to be colon cancer. Um, no family history of any sort. Um, you know, I was pretty healthy. I was young. Um, you know, if I would have looked up my symptoms online, I probably would have like ignored it as far as like, if anything said colon cancer, cause I'm thinking I'm, I'm young, I don't have cancer. Like, um, it, you know, it's an old man's disease, you know, but unfortunately, it's uh, starting to be, you know, more uh, younger people getting it. But at the time, you know, I hardly knew anybody who had it, like, like around my age. Um, and it's great now. There's so many resources out there for people, you know, social media, um, you know, like back in the day, there was a like a little bit starting because um, I've been um, a 15, I'm a 15 year survivor, um, 11 years I've been cancer free. Um, and you know, a lot has changed and, and it's, um, it's great that a lot has changed because, um, you know, I really had to advocate for myself when I was young, 
are younger. And um, I mean, a lot of people still do. Uh, but I think with, you know, having more technology and uh, more awareness is being able to like, you know, there's more tests out now. They're a lot easier for people to do. I remember, you know, when I was first diagnosed, there was like talk of like a blood test that you could do. And I was one of the people to like give a blood sample um, back at IU, you know, like 15 years ago. And now I'm actually able to see there's blood tests now for being able to detect colon cancer early, which is amazing. Um, that's so we were just talking about that. Was it, sorry to interrupt you. Was it that tumor DNA test, the circulating tumor? DNA? Yes. Yep. We yes. were just talking about yes. that on this show. Oh, that's awesome. So, Paula, going back, you know, 10 years now, what, what, was there anything in the beginning that kind of was like a warning sign for you, some early symptoms? And then you talked about how much things have changed um, and having seen it now. So what were the early signs and symptoms? And then what are the big things that kind of stand out in your mind, things like this blood test that really were kind of game changers in, 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 from your personal perspective? So, I mean, I pretty much had like the complete list of signs and symptoms of colon cancer, which you guys know is whenever you have signs and symptoms, it's like really too late because um, then it's a more advanced disease. So I was starting to have um, change in my bowel habits. I would go anywhere from like diarrhea to like um, small hard stools. I was very fatigued. You know, I'm usually very like energetic and like to like, I, I hardly sit down, you know, and I was so fatigued all the time. I just wanted to lay down a nap all day. I didn't feel like walking that much. Um, and then I remember like a few times I would have some like really big dinners and it just, you know, it didn't happen that often. Cause you know, like, like Thanksgiving or if I had a really big dinner, I would have really excruciating like belly pain and uh, back pain. And the back pain was coming from uh, my tumor grew out of my colon and it was surrounding the head of my pancreas. So that's how I ended up having back pain with the um, colon cancer. And I guess the belly pain was coming from like all the food trying to like get past the tumor in my colon. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, and it took me, I almost had like this little like notion in my head, like really need to get this checked out. It was just something a lot different from like, oh, I just like ate something I shouldn't have. You know, it was really like, I need to get this checked out. Something is really wrong. Um, and because I was so young, you know, I wasn't taken seriously. Um, oh, maybe it's like an ulcer, you know, um, I ended up quitting my job in California. I went back home to Indiana to my, um, old family physician and you know he was like filling around in my belly and he just like stopped and like had this look on his face like oh no um but you know the tumor didn't show up on an mri um and he kept testing me because he knew something was there he didn't tell me but i think he knew something was definitely there um he did a ct scan it showed up on the ct scan and you know luckily then we were able to go from there and so as you started to learn, I, I always ask people this, like, I, I don't think any of us, um, unless we are, are like Dr. Full and have chosen a career in cancer, right, spend all our time trying to learn about cancer. So where, what were the information and knowledge sources? Like, where did you get information about what treatment options are? What are they going to work? Where, where, where did you go to kind of help orient yourself to what was happening? 
I mean, like back then it was sort of like the wild, not like, you know, not like the complete wild west of the internet, but there really wasn't a whole lot of options and information out there. And I was not educated enough to know, like, I needed good insurance to cover my surgeries and my chemo, you know, thankfully I ended up doing, um, you know, keeping my insurance plan from my, uh, it was not the greatest insurance, but I still had insurance. Um, and I, you know, that first surgery I had was an exploratory surgery. And the main thing that I've learned is whatever type of cancer you have, whatever area it's at, go to find a surgeon that is an expert in that. Um, because since my colon cancer, like, um, it eventually spread to my pancreas, um, I went to a, you know, a doctor who could do the Whipple procedure in his sleep. You know, um, he was a biliary surgeon and that's what he did day and night. And like the surgeries I had from him were excellent. Um, and I think I'll, you know, a lot of my, um, being cancer-free today was, you know, thanks to him and like all his teams and all the other teams that were involved in my surgeries, um, to make sure that they were able to get the cancer out, you know? And so then, uh, and Dr. Full, we've been hearing this right though, all along. It's the teams and the people who are involved. In terms of kind of the 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 change over the last ten years, is there maybe just um, for time here one thing that you think has really been the biggest change, just from your perspective over the last ten years? Well, uh, Paula, uh, you probably is that for me or for Paula? No, sorry, I was asking Paula, but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, I recent I went to a, the colon cancer conference a couple of years ago, and it's amazing now that they can like you know do blood work and they can figure out what type of you know, um, chemotherapies are going to work ahead of time. Like if it's going to work with your blood, you know, DNA or not, which is amazing. I would have loved to have that, you know, back years ago. Um, I mean, you know, the first, you know, I did the, um, you know, the five FU and, um, you know, the red, the regular regime, um, the first time around, which worked, which was great because it shrunk my tumor to half, which was what I needed for my second surgery. But I mean, to really be able to have that kind of like unknown taken away to like, yeah, this is going to get it. This is going to really help me um, fight this is is amazing. It's mind blowing that we've gone this far. Wonderful. Thank you, Paula. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, sounds like you're doing well. And that's a long time um, you've been living with this and basically seeing the world change. Um, so it's fantastic. Yeah. So. Thank and, you. And Paula, Paula, let me just say that I just hear the words resilience in your entire story from that early diagnosis to now your hope, your optimism. And then look who helped you the most is your family doctor in Indiana who, who, who dug a little deeper. That, that wasn't tumor yeah. DNA. That was someone who cared for you and examined you and mm -hmm. took it seriously. I'm so glad you had that doctor catch it then. Yeah. I would, thank you so yeah, much. Every time I see it, I, I'm so thankful. And, and thanks, guys, for having me on. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Paul. Have a great day. Thanks. So I think Hannah. Hello. Hi. Hi. How Hi. are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, so my name is Mika. Uh, I'm the CEO for a company called Xcures. I'm running this podcast called uh, Target Cancer. So thank you so much for coming on with us. I'm joined by uh, Dr. Full, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, and then maybe after he does, you could tell us just a little bit about you uh, and your experience. Hi, Hannah. My name is Dr. Full. I'm a hematologist, oncologist, 
And like you said, we're doing this podcast to understand people's stories, to see where they have been through in their journey of cancer. And I love hearing people's stories. And we just talked to a lady who uh, really talked about her resilience, and, and, and but also the frustration and the different insights she had on different parts of the process. We'd love to hear your story. T- tell us more about yourself and, and what you're going through. Uh, well, I've got ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was diagnosed. It's coming up to two years since I was diagnosed. Um, so I was stage three at diagnosis. Right. How, how did you, how did, what, what happened that made you aware of this or the, like kind of what led up to the diagnosis? What, what was happening? It was six months. I had six months of symptoms. Mm. So I was going backwards and forwards with my doctors seeing various different doctors down at my GPs um, and they kept saying it was IBS. Mm-hmm. That's um, common. So what what led them to find out it's cancer or what, what how did your symptoms change to make you well, feel something different? Well, I started out here? with constipation mm-hmm. um, and I was taking laxatives for the constipation. And to begin with, I didn't really think anything of it because I'd had constipation kind of on and off most of my life. Um, I had a baby who was about three months old when my symptoms started. So we just oh, wow. thought it was my body kind of settling down, just adjusting to recently giving birth. Um, and then the laxatives weren't working. So they were prescribing different ones, stronger doses. Then I started getting heartburn, difficulty eating. It was just little things but nobody really pieced it all together. Every time I I went to the doctors, they were sort of treating what I was there for that day. So if I went down saying it's heartburn, I'd come away with heartburn medication. They weren't kind of looking at it all and thinking, oh, this could be something bigger. Um, About, probably about four months into the symptoms, I Googled it, as you do. And it came up with ovarian cancer, panicked myself, Mm. mentioned it to a nurse. And she said, no, my friend's got IBS. You've got the same symptoms. You're too young for ovarian cancer anyway. Uh, And then probably another month after that, the symptoms were just getting worse and I was bloated. I looked heavily pregnant. Mm. Um, I thought I had vertigo, but they said it was exhaustion. But again, because I had a young baby and I had a four-year-old as well, it was just kind of brushed off as something, nothing really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was one doctor that said, oh, this might actually be Crohn's disease. So let's get you referred to a colorectal specialist. Um, and she mentioned ovarian cancer, but said, it's, it is typically postmenopausal women. The referral to this specialist um, in, includes a blood test to rule out bowel and ovarian cancer. So that's how they found it, mm-hmm. because the markers for ovarian were out of the normal range, but they weren't too high, but they were out of normal. But even then, they were saying, oh, well, you, you are young. I was 35 when I was diagnosed. Wow. So, Do you have anyone in your family who has ovarian or breast cancer? No. Just... no. And was that a CA-125 test? Is that what you're yeah. describing? Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting, had they not done that, 
how much further down the, the rabbit hole would you have gone? And uh, what's interesting, you know, this is a podcast about new, you know, new technologies and ways we can detect cancer. CA125, as your doctors told you, is not a perfect marker. In fact, it can be normal and you can have cancer. It can also be extremely elevated and not have any cancer. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like a very difficult journey and you had a newborn at that time as well. Yeah. Wow. So uh, just then, as you've gone through the process, any particular places that you've gotten information, you know, from your doctors, sounds like you've had to learn a lot on your own um, kind of throughout this process. Any places you'd recommend for information, knowledge, kind of ways to advocate for yourself? Um, um, really? I mean, I've heard some of the other ladies speaking and just advocating for yourself is just the, the biggest tip I could give. I think not that there is much luck involved with cancer but i was lucky in that mine's non-aggressive they said when when they'd done the biopsy um and they sat me down and said there is definitely cancer you stage three if it had been aggressive i would have been dead mm -hmm. they'd have found it too late um so i'm living with it and the, mm -hmm. We don't, we, you know, we don't know how long far, but it, it I won't ever be cured. Um, but in terms of finding out information about it, for me, it's been social media, speaking to other ladies that have got ovarian cancer. That's where I found the most information. So it's really the connections to other patient groups and and those pieces. We yeah. when we hear so much of that, it's the the care teams and then the community that we're all in that, and, and, you know, I think of that at the people and then uh, Dr. Full, you and I were talking about, it's actually the technology that lets us all put this together in a way that we can all learn from it. Um, fascinating. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in England, so they do have like support groups and things. And mm. I was told I could be referred to them, but because it is typically, um, older ladies I didn't want mm -hmm. I, I didn't even look at them so I don't think there might have been like in-person support that I could have had but I wanted to speak to people that were similar age that were going through similar things you know and having to deal with having chemo and then going on the school run and I didn't feel that a support group with ladies that were in the 50s 60s 70s would have been right for me so it's for me it's just definitely social media mm -hmm. and hannah finding. have you done any have you done any genetic testing throughout this process they've tested me for the BRCA gene mm -hmm. um and and i don't have that mutation so it's just one of those things we don't know why i've got it interesting well it sounds like um this social media and the connectedness is really what's there. And we really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story. It's really, really appreciated, Hannah. I know it must thank be you. getting for you out there uh, as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you for joining us. Natalie, can you hear us? I can. I can. Thank you. I saw your... You've been on with us for a while, I think, um, in the background. So thank you for your uh, patience uh, here. My, my name is Mika. I'm the CEO of a company called uh, Xcures. Um, so thank you for coming on the Target Cancer 
uh, podcast, we're really talking about patients, their experiences, and then trying to understand kind of where information and technology helps them and their doctors uh, along the way. So I'm joined by uh, Dr. Full. I'll let him introduce himself uh, briefly and then maybe tell us a little bit about you and your experience. And... Well, hi, Natalie. I'm Dr. Full. I'm a hematologist, oncologist. And we're doing this podcast, as Mika said, to understand patients' journeys and uh, where they've been. And so far, we've been very inspired to hear everyone's kind of journey, what they've been through, the frustrations, the good and the bad. I'd love to hear yours. You know, tell me, tell me um, where this started for you and kind of some of the things you've been through. Hi, thank you guys for having me. Um, I was diagnosed with stage four rectal cancer last year in 2020 um during sort of the height of covid um i similar to hannah had just given birth and so Mm. all of my symptoms were my doctors kept thinking it was related to having just given birth Mm. and um that was obviously not the case um i finally had to really demand to see a gi and i got a colonoscopy and then i was thinking i was gonna have crohn's or colitis and i had cancer and it already had spread to my liver. So, um, and then at the time I started treatment last August and I was really sort of, I felt like I had a really good team. I'm with the University of Washington, Fred Hutch, um, Cell Cancer Care Alliance. And so I started going down sort of the traditional full Fox route and then um, did chemo radiation with Salota. And then the, the point that sort of, I stopped just sort of kind of, I don't want to say blindly following my, my doctors, but, but sort of wondering is this, uh, the surgery coming up, um, the surgery to remove my primary tumor was a turning point where I started to consider looking into information myself. Mm-hmm. My father-in-law, um, he's not an MD, but he, um, he has a PhD in science with a biology background. So he, he kind of started to look around the world and notice that there was some some trends where if you had a complete result, maybe you wouldn't have the surgery. And that information led to a lot of conversations and led, led to me trying to get a second opinion with Memorial Sloan Kettering. And mm-hmm. um, in the end, we ended up deciding to do the surgery. But I look back at that point and being like, if I hadn't had my father-in-law to, to navigate and read peer-reviewed journals, um, I wouldn't have even known about that as an option as something to consider. And that while that wasn't the standard of care in Seattle at Memorial Sloan Kettering, it was. And so that was one piece. Um, so I did this massive 18 hour surgery um, this spring and we got the primary tumor and we thought we got the ablated the last bit of stuff in my liver, but it came back pretty quickly this summer in my liver. And so I just started redoing full Fox and I just finished um, four rounds of full Fox, so 12 infusions I've had total. Mm-hmm. And really what I've started to do this summer is started to think more about looking for other sources of information out there. So, um, you know, I'm at a point now where, you know, my doctors are talking about maybe we would add um, a biologic um, or maybe switch you to a different chemo. And... I started going on social media and connecting with other people through peer groups like the Colorectal Cancer Alliance um, through um, I found some a group of people that are making a website just for young colorectal patients, Bluem, 
um, and started tracking these people and seeing what they were doing. And then I realized that there's um, like I, I had done uh, Tempest biomarker testing, but I realized now that there's different testing. Um, I had done genetic testing. I tested negative for all the genetics for myself. Um, and then I started learning about um, more targeted therapies. If you were to do a biopsy and like grow out the cells. So I'm, I'm, I sort of found you guys at a sort of a point where I am really trying to look and see like, what are all the options moving forward? And I'm at a point where I'm not really interested in just being like, let's just keep pouring chemicals in you and then see what happens. Like this is what happens for most people. But I really wanted a more personal, I'm at a point where I really am looking for a more personalized healthcare plan um, moving forward. So I just did, I sent all of you my medical records. I got my summary, which was really nice, very digestible. Mm -hmm. And um, we just got the healthcare recommendations, which were interesting. So these are things that we're looking into now and, and discussing with my family. Was this through Cancer Commons or one of these organizations or X-Cures or? X-Cures. Excellent. Excellent. So are you considering um, it just, uh, you mentioned the technology around um, actually uh, growing tumors out. I think of that as or organoid testing. Is that what you were referring to where they would actually take a piece of your tumor and. I don't know the exact, I'm not a scientist, but um, and the, the testing I found out about, cause I'm up here in Seattle is Fred Hutch has one called mm -hmm. Paris testing specific yep. for colorectal cancer. And so because that's local, that would have been an option that I'm considering next um, to do more targeted. Um, yeah, I think the company is called Sengen, if I remember correctly. Yes, uh, and I've been yeah. in touch with their um, CEO, mm -hmm. Carla Grandori. Yep, I know just, Carla, she's a great lady. So um, I'm just trying to engage in the community and, and in, in the meantime, I'm just on Instagram, just looking for support, emotional mm -hmm. for other people and offering support to other people too. So, you know, first of all, thank you um, for coming on the show. Secondly, I'm really excited that you've had a chance to, to work with the company. Um, in terms of w when you said you needed, made a decision where you wanted to learn on your own, right? What, and it was kind of coming from your dad. Like what, what you said that was kind of the pivotal moment. Was it that you felt like there was information you didn't have? Like what, what kind of drove that? Or you felt you needed to get more information yourself. I'm kind of uh, trying to scratch it, kind of the emotional change that took place or the psychological change that made you say, wait a minute, I need to, because it's a, it's a big endeavor, right? To go yeah, off and well, So knowing that I was going through this life-changing surgery, so my surgery resulted in a permanent colostomy. Um, and I mean, it was 18 hours. It was not a big deal. So <laughs> That gave me some pause right there and a lot of anxiety and um, wanted me to look into other options. And the other thing that I sort of started to realize, and this isn't, um, Dr. Fall, this isn't anything against you or other medical doctors, is you, you see people emotionally breaking down when they get this information. And so you try to give them just pieces and not like the tip of the iceberg because you don't want them to just collapse mm -hmm. and give up, mm -hmm. which I understand. Um, but me being like the type A person was like, I want to be able to look down the road and think ahead and I want to know what plan B and plan C is. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started to realize that like the only way to kind of get that information, I was going to have to sort of advocate a little bit more for myself and then call in my village. And luckily in my village, I have some scientist people that are better at reading peer reviewed journals than myself to help me look into things and see what, what other opportunities are going on globally 
and that we should bring up as questions with my healthcare team. And Natalie, that's very common, and I encourage that, in fact, for our patients. I think the way I try to discuss it is say, all right, here's the big steps, you know, surgery, let's say radiation, chemo. And I say, those are the big ones. Let's focus on what we're on right now and get through this part. And then we un un unravel the next part. I realize, though, that surgery, you describe a very common experience. When you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be left with a permanent ostomy, that is an irreversible decision. In many ways, chemo, we can modify, we can change, we can add on, subtract. You know, you you can you can be a candidate for targeted therapy, hopefully based on genomic testing, but it's almost like I can't take away that whatever happens to me on after surgery, and so I, I commend you for doing that and for ha you know not everyone has the resources, but you are already at a very fantastic institution on the West Coast, a very reputable one, and you went on the one on the East Coast. You got two fantastic opinions, and I I always tell people that it's not about disagreements between teams. It's about getting teams together, getting people together to understand patients and patient care better. It's we're all learning at the same time. What we're doing today may not be the same thing in 10 years from now, but the standard of care tends to be the proven standard of care. And in the end of the day, it requires a team to enact it, including the patient. You know, we never can get anything done without sharing that decision-making. It's your body and your life we want to give you the tools to do it that to, to, to do it right by you basically and i hope that's what your experience has been since getting those opinions for sure that i, I would say that seattle cancer carolines all of my and university of washington all of my physicians they work as teams and i, I purposely selected them because there weren't any big egos they didn't have any qualms with me wanting to talk to memorial sloan kettering because mm -hmm. they were like yeah it's a life-altering decision why not get a second opinion um, and there was no no hard feelings about that, which just made me feel even better about staying with my team. So, yeah. well, Natalie, you bring up a great point there. I've actually heard um, before patients who were worried about um, getting a second opinion or were worried they would affect their relationship with their primary care, uh, primary oncologist or that sort of thing. And I, th I think I'm every oncologist I've ever spoken to, and I'm sorry, Dr. Paul, I don't mean to put words your mouth, has said, no, please understand what is happening, right? And, and appreciate that. And I think that's just really important knowledge for people is that this is complicated. Um, there are multiple directions that can go. Some of the decisions are very significant and, and you really want to make sure that you're you you understand that. Um, in terms of your experience, then, um, Natalie, is there anything at this point where you, you know you had some pivotal learning? Uh, I always think like some significant thing uh, along the way that you just think that every uh, cancer patient should know or understand. I mean, I think I would go back to everyone else's that you need to be listen to your own body and advocate for yourself. So as much as there's exciting opportunities in the medical field, so many times. Uh, I knew my own body before the doctors were able to diagnose me or treat things. And so um, I think listening to that has been has been the best, um, you know, but but also I, I think finding a really good cancer support body. I think a lot of people talked about that, too. That was huge. The Colorectal Cancer Alliance does a good job of they've matched me up with somebody very similar situation. Stage four who had just had a baby, too, and was six mm -hmm. years NED. And that was that person was very helpful for me too. Yeah. So, yeah. Community. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your experience, um, uh, Natalie. And um, I'm wishing you well. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, Dr. Fole, thank you so much for you as well. Um, we had you on here for quite a while, so I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for being on the Target Cancer uh, podcast and helping me talk about technology and talking to these wonderful, resilient people and everything that they've been through. Um, I've really, really enjoyed um, this time together. And for all you folks out there in the audience, um, please come check out Xcures, uh, explore your op options, um, uh, websites, xcures.com, uh, explore your options. Um, we're here to help you with information um, for you and your physician and teams to make a, a better decision together. So thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for having me on here as well. And to everyone who shared today, we, we really love hearing patient stories. And that was very, it, I feel like I'm very honored and privileged to be able to hear everyone's stories and what you've been through. And we thank you for sharing that. We understand it's not easy to share this. But we wish the very best for you. We're so happy to, to hear all of that. And I hope we were able to give you some resources and, and some encouragement as well. You've certainly encouraged us. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Paul. So um, just taking a quick break. We're going to shut down. But thank you. I'm going to come down and get in contact with you um, otherwise uh, around Palomar. Um, and best of luck um, with that. And anything I can do to help, um, you know how to, how to reach me. Thank you, Mika. Take care. If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the Xcure's free options and information service.